I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. I hope you're still out there. It's been a while. It's been an absolutely chaotically, uh, chaotically hectic autumn so far. We've had people travelling all over the place to and from. But I'm delighted to say that Undercurrents is back. We have some fascinating new interviews for you and can't wait to share them with you. So up first this week, I have got an interview with Ori Okolo who is the Managing Director for Africa at Luminate, which is a philanthropic organisation that conducts a lot of projects around transparency and democracy. And we were speaking specifically about dark money and illicit financial flows, that kind of subterranean network of money that flows across borders, often uh, outside of the law, and which is having quite an extreme effect on political processes all over the world. And then the second interview is with Chatham House's own Cleo Pascal, who is an associate fellow with both the Asia-Pacific Programme and the Energy, Environment and Resources Department. And she came in all the way from Canada to discuss international relations in the Indo-Pacific region and what the many states within that region think about the world and geopolitics and who they should be friends with and who they should be worried about and what the two major powers in the region, China and the US, are doing to increase their influence. Hope you enjoy listening. All right. Well, today I'm delighted to be joined by Ori Okolo, who is the Managing Director for Africa at Luminate, which is a philanthropic organisation. She's based in Nairobi and previously Ori worked as a policy manager at Google. And in 2014, she was named in the Times 100 list of the world's most influential people. So we're in esteemed company. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ori. Thank you for having me. Looking um, forward to this. Great. So you are here today for the Chatham House Conference on Illicit Financial Flows, which is an annual conference. Could we just begin by giving us a sense of what people mean when they say illicit financial flows? Because it sounds like quite a kind of techie, technocratic term. But what, what does it actually mean? So the most simplest way to define illicit financial flows is the illegal movement of money across borders. And this can happen in various ways. One, uh, through actually carrying money in suitcases. <laughs> Although people don't do that anymore. And, <laughs> and if you've uh, had to fill out a customs form when you arrive and declare, um, that's kind of the most basic way. Also through things like tax avoidance which I think has been quite a hot issue in Europe, UK and the US, where you are doing trade, you're trading in a country, but you're reporting zero profits, zero losses, or you're anchoring your actual business in a tax haven. So basically when you're avoiding paying taxes or you're booking your money in the, you know, in a tax haven like mm-hmm. a Luxembourg or sometimes Dublin mm-hmm. uh, or Amsterdam. Right. Uh, some of it is legal, but there's quite a, a range of that that's illegal. A third way is uh, potentially through money laundering. 
where you park your money in real estate, in in assets and other parts of the world and move it around. So there are various ways that this happens from the most basic, as I said, just money literally crossing the border to using very complicated schemes um, to move money legally across borders. And we can go into why this happens. Mm, Sure. Mm. And do you have a sense of sort of how bigger problem this is? I imagine it must be pretty... Yeah, it's, it's billions of dollars a year. Africa alone is estimated to lose 20% minimum of its trade revenues to sort of people not declaring oh my their, their, their profits or their, their income, mostly businesses in Africa. A few years ago, Kofi Annan Commission did a report where they were trying to quantify, and it was billions of dollars, which should have been booked as tax revenue, which means there's less money to spend on development, on services, and so on. Within the UK alone, uh, which is a centre for illicit financial flows, again, (laughs) (laughs) among many other things, uh, it's it's estimated also to be in the billions of, of, of dollars. And actually, there is a growing concern, depending on how things go with Brexit, that the UK will be keen to uh, unwind some of the laws and measures they had put in place to prevent illicit financial flows because it's good for business. Uh, and they'll be looking to regain their status as sort of a centre where people can park their money. So these are things that are very alive and are very concerning. It, some have argued, um, again, uh, in parts of Africa and emerging markets and so on, if we just close these loopholes, there wouldn't need to be uh, a need for so much uh, development aid because we could potentially sustain ourselves through the trade and through this income that is being parked elsewhere. That's one angle. There's also, um, if you look at many, I think Cyril Ramaphosa was here um, earlier this week and talked about how South Africa is estimated to have lost about $34 billion um, under the Zuma years with the Gupta brothers, and quite a number of companies were involved in helping them move money around. What these structures do is take what was basically, you know, the corruption that used to be, give me a cut of this contract. Um, With all these schemes, it allows the corruption to go to kind of as young people say, like next level. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of having dictators, authoritarians or corrupt leaders who are stealing a few hundred million there, then now operating at a scale of billions because it's much easier to move the money around and park it in very complex schemes. So even if you're trying to unpack and figure out where that money is, it's become a lot harder to do. And so there's real time and real life implications it's not just a sort of esoteric like you know well money's moving here and there but the implications are are, are quite serious uh, as well mm. yeah i mean obviously you've got a you've got a background in in technology i was just wondering whether you think that things like the internet have played a role in making this process easier do you think that technology is is aiding the people that are yeah. Yes. Yeah, so one, it, it it is aiding, but two, it's also if I look at through Illuminate, a number of the organisations that we support, uh, also aiding the unmasking of this. So, for instance, uh, we support ICIJ, uh, which did two big investigations. The 
of Panamaliks and the, the Paradise Papers, which were facilitated one through kind of, you know, online mm. gathering of information and leaks, and then collaboration with journalists from all over the world who are able to contextualize what the, these leaks mean in a Kenya, in a Iran, in a, you know, uh, Indonesia and the UK. And so on the one hand, you do have kind of technology making it easier perhaps to mask uh, these transactions, but it's also making it easier to expose them as well. We are supporting a number of organizations that are looking at, and for instance, in the UK, mining all this data that's released about companies, you know, because the UK is fairly transparent. But someone needs to, you know, the ordinary person doesn't have the ability to follow the, what we call follow the money. And so I, I'd say on the net, tech has been more positive in terms of helping uncover the secrecy um, and helping mine the data and helping piece things together. Mm. Yeah, and we're seeing quite a number of groups doing that really, really well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was just wondering as well, to what extent does this evolve? Are, are there always more, new, new sort of avenues that people are doing this around or is it just that the existing ones are so hard to address Evolving rapidly, right. and mm. that's part of the challenge of how we address this space. Uh, you spend all this time on new regulations. I think earlier this morning there was a discussion on, you know, the anti-money laundering laws, uh, new company acts. We've just tackled beneficial ownership uh, in the UK, where they're removing the secrecy in uh, the UK and the territories. You know, places like the Cayman and Jersey and so on. You know, I'm sure as soon as you tackle one area, the Emirates are now becoming uh, a new haven uh, because right. it's becoming much harder in Europe. And before that, it was Switzerland. And, and so you have to constantly keep up with the new schemes that are evolving. What has changed, I think, is before these were issues that were addressed very domestically, right? And so there was much less collaboration uh, you had a few, a few campaigners, you know, maybe in some parts of Africa and a few in London um, and maybe a few in the U.S. And now you're seeing really great coalitions and mm -hmm. partnerships where this is not being treated just as a corrupt Africa problem or a corrupt Asia problem. It's a global problem. And, you know, less finger pointing and saying, well, you guys, it's, it's not our problem that they're choosing to bank here. It's your problem that, you know... Um, they're stealing but now when having the rise of corrupt leaders everywhere uh, <laughs> uh, you're saying it's not a very unique problem and it's coming to your doorstep and so a lot more I think progress in terms of collaborations as I said um, UK is a great example you have Global Witness um, uh, Transparency International UK uh, finance Uncovered, who are great. They're based here in London, and we support them. They train about 300 journalists a year on accounting, how to read financial papers, how to understand statements, how to do investigations, how to protect themselves, how to protect whistleblowers. And so this idea that it's just you know, an isolated problem, I think there's been a big shift in that, which allows then, this collaboration allows sort of better responses to the complexities as they're emerging because you're not again just tackling one part of it it's everything from the literally figuring out how to read the statements tackling the laws 
doing the investigations, going to court and realizing that you can't just say, you know, oh, we're exposing them and that's it. Okay, now you've exposed them. What happens next? How do people get punished? How do you make sure this doesn't happen again? More optimistic that even as things are evolving, the responses are also becoming a lot more nuanced and and um, more capabilities to tackle the problems as they emerge. Mm, Am I, I think I'm using too much jargon. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm following it and yeah. I'm, I'm very uh, economically illiterate, so. <laughs> well, well <done. laughs> so, so it's very clear. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, obviously you've, you've mentioned a few times now uh, corruption and corrupt leaders um, politically. And uh, I think... Obviously, that a lot of the debates that are going on around, particularly in the US at the moment, around draining swamps and things, it's, there's definitely a sense that politics is very much bound up in this process. But could you tell us a bit more about what you think the impact of illicit financial flows are on kind of democracy and the political process? Sure. Illicit financial flows are several, and we're seeing several uh, negative impacts on democracy and democratic process. Uh, first, to the extent that resources that should be going towards serving the public, um, whether it's health or education or providing sort of basic goods are being diverted elsewhere. Um, there's one just the actual people's lives are being negatively impact, impacted, but it's also leading to a lot of anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. I've been talking quite a bit about, you know, we've lost the sense of democracy as a social contract. And, you know, we ask the citizens to vote and educate themselves about the processes and track their budget and ask questions. And so, you, you know, these, we're seeing buy into the system mm. uh, that is democracy because it will improve your lives. And when your lives are not getting improved, when you've bought into the system and trying to do the right thing and follow the rule of law, etc., cetera, um, but your leaders at the top are not doing that or you're looking at other systems, maybe they're less democratic, but better quality of life. Those are real questions, you know, that you ask yourself, well, what's in it for me as an individual? Why should I buy into this? So one, there's, you know, negatively impacting the ability for government to deliver public goods to increased sort of either anger or apathy, uh, sort of low voter turnout. We saw that in the U.S., uh, in the Trump election, in Brexit, uh, many European countries, it's like 40, 35 percent. You have to ask yourself, is that even choice? You know, and that's mm. why the people say, oh, sorry. OK, come back, do, do Brexit referendum again. This time we'll go to the polls. But, you know, not showing up is also, I think, not just apathy. That's a choice yeah. uh, where people definitely what's in it for me. And then you are seeing lots of trust in institutions. Right. Um, Because they're not able to deliver either on the goods or you're not punishing people who are corrupt or people seem to be getting away, particularly the elites with everything, which then makes it very open to kind of a drain the swamp rhetoric and we're going to clean it up. And, you know, this end of the experts and, you know, you get a Bolsonaro uh, get a Duterte, you get uh, the Trump, you get a Boris, you get any number of leaders who are coming in on the rhetoric and the capture, really, of the corruption narrative mm. to say that forget the rules, we're just going to get it done. And we're the type, we're not lying to you, you know. We're just what you see is what you get. We're not this slick sort of selling you 
some story um, and we're coming in to 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 fix it and don't ask us too many questions also but we'll just get it done and there's an appetite for that because everything else doesn't seem to be working so this it's kind of what at risk of a very vicious cycle the americans got a flywheel where you know if you don't interrupt it at some point and one of the ways is through you know actually beginning to address impunity two is to begin to address sort of inequalities real inequalities that are emerging you know there's a lot of examination of the state of democracy today increasingly when you talk about state of capitalism um how we're doing things this you know allowing companies and banks to just do whatever failure of audit is is a growing question so it's all interlinked uh, but i'd say the biggest threat is this the capture of the narrative loss of trust in institutions and people asking as a citizen if your lives are not improving over the last 30 40 years what's in it for you in this whole playing by the rules you're playing by the rules nobody else is and you you there's a real fear that your children's lives uh will be you'll be worse off you know you're losing gains and and a lot of it's perception if you look at the stats actually you know we're doing pretty well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as human beings you mm. know we're dying less is less wars there's this you know and so but you know it's a feeling right and yeah. and if you start feeling things are not going well it's leading to really many irrational choices um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's almost a communications problem as much as it <laughs> as is yeah. and you know i've been there's a growing question of do we are we doing not too much now you know does it seem like relentless right? transparency has limits yes. <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't be saying this but you know i mean uh, you know i worked at google before and uh, there was a time of real tech optimism right and let's get online and we'll be connected and we'll do great things and we'll change the world and uh we'll tackle our leaders and question them and mm. monitor them and do all sorts of things but it was based on an assumption that people are fundamentally good now we're like maybe we don't really want everybody online you know you know we want to deplatform certain people right yeah. that's a big thing now deplatforming like um, what's his name Milo 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 uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um Unopolis. yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. you know the the alt right movement and so really tough questions around is it that we're just overwhelmed with the flow of information with no intermediation with no one to distill it for us with no one to say hey step back calm down mm. you know there is room for compromise there is room for negotiation there's it's not all doom and gloom um and this is certainly bleeding into this question of you know sometimes even how we think about narratives we talk about this within corruption being very you know is it um, you know should we be saying illicit financial flows or breaking it down to sort of things that are very tangible and people can connect to in the way that you were pushing me to do earlier on mm. um because otherwise it just seems like oh, okay that's too complicated for me yeah um and it has nothing to do with my life and so why should i care about you know into money laundering laws yeah yeah so do you think that this kind of renewed transparency on issues like illicit financial flows has actually revealed to ordinary people the kind of limits of what politicians can do because that seems to be that the more we see the more we realize that actually um the more people are disappointed but yeah. maybe that's also because 
it shows that this all-powerful state that we sort of put our trust in actually has limited ability to deal with with sort of the economics of this. Definitely. I mean, so so there's definitely a growing sense that it's not just a political problem. Mm. Um, as I said earlier, it's, there's also questions that about the structure and how capitalism is being practiced today um, and how perhaps we've let the corporate power become a lot more influential than even... Uh, political power when you have or individual sort of billionaires who can dictate the direction uh, of politics or of campaigns or of how things flow and realizing that there too much of attention was focused on the political response to challenges like corruption illicit financial flows and not necessarily acknowledging how power has evolved and where power sits today um, it's not just in politics, certainly in business, certainly in individuals, certainly geopolitically, you know, the centers of power have shifted radically. Um, and so there's growing questions about, you know, is our expertise uh, from two decades ago still mm. relevant? Uh, who's in the room? Who's doing the work? Uh, suddenly, are we listening more to people from the global south uh, who've been dealing with a lot of these issues for a while? What can we learn from them in terms of tackling this? And so there are definitely broader questions, one around centers of power have shifted, and we need to shift uh, in terms of our responses and not just target the state. Uh, either because it's too complicated or they're captured or they're helpless, as you see. Second, then, once you begin to think about, okay, who are the new centers of power and how do you go after them? I think there's also a realization that in the whole transparency movement, we're maybe asking too much of the citizen. And, you know, a lot of the open data and the open budgets and the disclosures was the expectation that the citizens would then use that to either push for more accountability or make better decisions or vote leaders out. If you think about it, you know, and I say like that as people, including myself, when's the last time I went to a budget hearing Mm. as, you know, sort of an informed person in this space, like in my locality, it's just too much going on in your day-to-day lives. Uh, Once in a while I might read a document, but I, I... you know, we need the role of intermediaries is coming back. Whether it's civil society, whether it's working with professional institutes, if you're tackling audits, should we be engaging the professional auditing auditors groups and saying, guys, can we go back to the role of audit is to, you know, not just tick boxes and mm. follow the rules, but also exercise judgment. Yeah. Uh, you know, same way doctors divide by an oath, you know, auditors are supposed to comply with certain rules and has it just gone too much to the other side where things like Carillon and, and so on are happening, companies are collapsing, but somehow the audits were great, right, until they weren't. Until... And so looking at different centers of power and influence is becoming a lot more important. And I think we've learned that by, you know, as you said, we're realizing actually politicians can only do so much um, to address the problem. Mm-hmm. And so maybe just to just to move towards solutions to this to sure. this problem. I mean, from what you've described, it sounds like in reality, what is needed is a kind of global response. But what particular kind of levers should policymakers be pulling to address this? Sure. 
so there are a number of levers that can be uh, and that are already happening. One is increasing collaboration, um, sort of boring on the uh, counterterrorism model, where certainly the states got together and and either sharing sort of suspects that are making it harder for them to move money around, uh, sharing intelligence, um, sharing skills, capacity building, they'll come to trainings. Let's say Kenya is a big Al-Shabaab problem, Boko Haram with Nigeria, or even the backyard in France, you know, mm. etc. You've seen a lot more coalescing and cooperation um, around dealing with it. Not perfect, but a much more coordinated response. And in some cases, illicit financial flows are actually tied to, you know, terrorism activities in terms of how the money that finances that moves around. Uh, same thing with drugs, you know, the, where drug trafficking across borders is a lot more sort of collaboration at the global level. I think that is now extending into illicit financial flows where it's, you know, the OECD at the EU, you know, a lot more collaboration uh, at the state level, at the policy level, uh, at the sanctions level. The UK Bribery Act has actually been quite great at punishing for activity just because mm. you're doing it elsewhere but you are a UK company you can't do that the same yeah. with the US and so that's been great and you're seeing increasing collaboration there um, around state actors in particular I think that the next level is to sort of there have been many several laws passed around financial institutions um, and banks uh, but you know there's so much information being generated and no one is really tracking properly right. like mm-hmm. what they're doing so they're like hey yeah sure here's an, a dump of all things we're doing <laughs> um and so thinking about and we've already started by supporting organizations like finance and covered supporting intermediaries civil society media organizations groups that are maybe lobbying on a particular issue to begin to unpack that data that is being shared and to pull trends and to begin to analyze and say, hey, guys, here's the problem, because the regulators just don't have the capacity to process everything that's being shared with them. So the next opportunity and solution is is to say, okay, how do we support the state to enforce the rules that they've put in place, Uh, whether it's through exposure, whether it's through analysis, whether it's through investigations that are then presented to them. I think on the third piece is kind of working better to connect this to the ordinary people. Yeah. What I could say, the so what question. And there, for instance, some of the work I'm supporting is really bringing it back to service delivery questions at the really, really basic level. I might not be able to process the big shell block or block case as an ordinary Nigerian citizen, but I can certainly tell you about what's not ha- what's happening in my backyard as a result of the corruption that's being facilitated at the top level. And so linking it down to this is what your budgets should be, this is where the money was allocated and it's not come here. Yeah. You report to us and tell us what's happening, document it, take a picture. They're great organizations. Uh, they're doing that one's called Follow the Money in Nigeria. And they got to the communities. They sit with them. They walk them through. And it's very rudimentary. Wow. Yeah. They invite government officials, local, to come and sit and hear from the people. They say this school has been incomplete for the last three years. We've been told this is the budget. 
Um, and so the working to support intermediaries who can do a bit of that heavy lift mm. for the citizen and then connect them is is very, very important, not forgetting that, you know, at the heart of this is the public and why should they care. So one is that service delivery and two is the narrative. Um, really investing and thinking about shifting. You know, we live in a world that's you know, storytelling. I guess storytelling has always been critical, right? From yeah. fairy tales and, yeah, yeah. And, and so on. And so a number of organizations, uh, Global Witness is a great one, are doing really fantastic work on campaigns and how do you sort of connect all these threads again in a way that whoever you're trying to influence can hear you uh, and in a way that the public either gets outraged or they care or they follow up. So those are kind of the four spaces. You know, it's at the state level, regulator and intermediary capacity, answering the so what question, why should we care? And I think just acknowledging the world that we live in when you're being bombarded, you have to get a lot smarter about the narratives, about the angles that you push, about who you influence, about mapping power and so on. Um, so a lot of work to be done. But I think the encouraging thing is that um, quite a bit of it is already underway. Oh, a positive note on which to end. Yes, okay. always. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Sorry, Okola. Thank you for having me. Okay, so today I'm delighted to be joined by Cleo Pascal. Cleo is an Associate Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department and the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. A dual affiliation, very exciting. And she's based in Canada, so we're very lucky that she's come back to London today to sit in our rather gloomy media studio with the rain lashing down outside. <laughs> Apologies for this, but thank you very much for joining us. At least it's not snowing. Yeah, very true. Oh, it's, you've got snow where you are. Oh, gosh. Ski season soon, though, right? Oh, I hope so. I hope something season, something, something <laughs> positive, something is going to come out of this. Just not meh. Yeah. But we're here today to talk about a new project that you're working on with the Asia-Pacific program. Um, and and, and both. Oh, yeah. it's a joint project. Yeah, very exciting. Awesome. And which is about the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific region. So I just wondered whether we could begin with a bit of a summary of what we mean when we say Indo-Pacific. So that's a, it's actually a very pertinent and important question. And um, it gets to the heart of this issue of perceptions about strategic situations in the Indo-Pacific because the West really wants to define it. So we, I was just in France at uh, IFRI, and a big question was, what is the concrete definition of the Indo-Pacific? How do we define our goals? All that sort of stuff. Mm. But the, our Asian partners, for example, India, prefer to leave the term vague because it gives them a kind of strategic ambiguity that can let them say, look, this isn't about China. This is about our region. This is about partnerships and all sorts of different configurations. So even the idea of the word being ambiguous, shows how different the perceptions are in the strategic approach to the region. Broadly speaking, if you look at, at what's happening in the West, for example, uh, the, the U.S. military, the U.S. military uh, is divided into regions of the world. So they used to have, for example, Pacific Command based out of Hawaii. That very recently was renamed Indo-Pacific Command specifically so that it can cover India, it can mm. bring India and its strategic weight 
into the U.S. strategic definition of the Indo-Pacific. So from a U.S. perspective, it basically goes from India to the U.S. West Coast. Uh, India would shift it more to the left and include the east coast of Africa all the way out to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So depending on where you are, you might position it a little differently. So that's obviously a vast geographic region, but who's... Who are the kind of major players in the region beyond the U.S. and India? So the other fundamental difference with the term Indo-Pacific to the term that is often used or has been used in the past, which is Asia-Pacific, is Asia-Pacific is primarily a land-based construct, whereas Indo-Pacific is primarily a maritime construct. Mm -hmm. So in Asia-Pacific, the Central Asian countries would be important, for example. The stands would have been important. Using the term Indo-Pacific, you shift more to a maritime focus. So you've got all of the players, big players you would expect, uh, Japan, India, Australia, U.S., obviously China, but also Indonesia becomes very important. Malaysia becomes important. The Philippines becomes important. Mm-hmm. So when you shift to that maritime focus, when you when you put the, the Indo-Pacific at the center of your strategic map, a lot of the island countries that are in the middle of a cont- potentially contested strategic space, which is the same strategic space that was the front line during World War II, essentially, which Mm. was the last time that there was tensions ratcheting up between the Americas and Asia, becomes much more prevalent, relevant, and important. And you mentioned that you were in France. Was that last week? Yep. Yeah. And there's also part of this project happening, obviously, here in London in Chatham House. I just wondered what skin in the game countries like France and the UK have in this because it seems so far away. So in the case of France, France is unusually big. So if you, France has never really let go of its uh, colonies. So it actually has territories that are categorically part of France all across the Indo-Pacific, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, islands in the Indian Ocean. And because of the unconventional law of the sea, every tiny little island gets a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone around it. So when you add up France's entire exclusive economic zone, it actually is the second largest exclusive economic zone in the world. And most of that is maritime and most of that is in the Indo-Pacific. And France has military bases. It was the site of nuclear testing. It's, you know, very much a player in the Indo-Pacific. It's also increasingly involved in weapons sales and in diplomatic outreach. It's there. And it's it's very much part of the French strategic consciousness to, to basically say the sun never sent on the French empire. <laughs> right. <laughs> so So the French are... They're in the Indo-Pacific in a very concrete way. You go to French Polynesia, it's 220 voltage with the French plugs and, you know, like it's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The UK is a little bit different. The UK's uh, reach is a a lot of it is Commonwealth related, soft power related, language related, but at a very core level, it's five eyes related. So in terms of intelligence infrastructure, one of the most important intelligence sharing organizations is the five eyes, which was set up after World War II, which includes the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And the U.K. is considered one of the most important countries in the world in terms of intelligence gathering and analysis. And because of its historic networks across that area, it is highly valued as a partner. 
And when uh, Boris Johnson was foreign minister, one of the things he announced was the reopening of nine diplomatic posts around the world. Three of them are in the Pacific, including places like Tonga. Mm. And they're places where the U.S. doesn't have diplomatic representation. They're, they're Commonwealth countries that are very small and so and are increasingly important for strategic positioning. China is becoming very active. Yeah. So I think the U.K., if... Prime Minister Johnson is uh, is related to Foreign Minister Johnson in terms of strategic outlook. What you might end up seeing with the UK is the UK leveraging its position with these tiny countries that had been previously overlooked or discounted in order to increase the UK's importance to its larger partners. Okay. Well, like the US, for example. Sure. And now you mentioned earlier how India liked to try and keep the definition of Indo-Pacific very vague, so vis-a-vis -vis its kind of relationship with China. But is this about containing China? How much of it is about China's perceived rise or expansion in this region and efforts to limit that? So it depends on Who your you strategic yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, that's, and that's part of what this project is looking at. If you're, if you're in the U.S., there is absolutely no question this is about China, 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 China. And in fact, I, you know, I would say, yeah, it's about China. But whether it's about containing China, cooperating with China, whatever, whatever that is, that might be modulated based on the location you're in. And the reason it's because of China is because China has put an enormous amount of emphasis on maritime domain. So they're building up the Navy. They've got a lot of gray hull ships. They're, they are focused on going out in, in a maritime manner in a way that they haven't been before for hundreds and hundreds of years. So they're pushing into spaces that aren't used to seeing China. You know, they've got the base in Djibouti. They have those potential dual-use ports in a, in a whole bunch of different locations. And, and it's, it's the, the, the BRIs overtly land-based, but also maritime-based. Sure. So it set off alarm bells all across the world. So yes, uh, you know, I think if everybody knows that, that the Indo-Pacific construct probably wouldn't be there, ex except in trade terms, if it wasn't for China. What that means in terms of how they view that construct will be different in the capital, depending on the capital you're in. Of course. And, and how much is this Indo-Pacific construct a kind of conscious multilateral process where states are trying to cooperate on this or how much is it just a kind of academic way of perceiving the region as a whole that's another very relevant question there is no you know kind of indo-pacific community secretariat right so it's a it's a framework for for looking at some of these things the the first semi attempt to operationalize it at a macro level would be the quad which which was which is this sort of defense potential defense partnership between um, US India Australia and Japan there was an attempt to start this up over 10 years ago and then Australia pulled out out of concerns about what China would think oh, okay. uh, Australia's now joined back in and is like we 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 are now very concerned. We understand what's going on. We want to be part of this, please. <laughs> There's uh, there are various levels of cooperation between the four, but currently those the bilateral or trilateral relationships are much stronger than the quadrilateral relationship. And there are other countries like France who would like it to be a quad plus one or quad plus two. And the Indians are saying if we're going to do the quad, 
or we're going to work on this, we're going to really annoy our ASEAN partners. So we want to at least include countries like Indonesia, Philippines, and Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And Vietnam, and Vietnam is a very important player in a lot of this as well. So it's all very nascent. In some cases, because you're dealing with democracies, you get a change of government and you get a change of uh, commitment to, to that. The defense sector is very clear about how important this is, but there hasn't even been a cross-defense sector analysis of capabilities that would allow increased interoperability at that level. There's a lot of bilateral stuff, but not necessarily kind of multilateral to the degree that would be necessary to make it more functional. Yeah, just on the US involvement in this process, obviously one of the observations you could make about President Trump's administration so far is has been their rethinking of their commitments to military organizations like NATO. How far has the situation changed when it comes to the Indo-Pacific? Because obviously one of uh, another one of President Trump's um, obsessions, it seems, has been China and what do we do about China and obviously his trade war and all of this stuff. Has he been a big supporter of this kind of cooperation? Yeah, uh, um, absolutely. The, the administration has been pushing the uh, tagline of a free and open Indo-Pacific since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And they renamed Pacific Command Indo-Pacific Command. So I don't know how much attention uh, the president himself is is paying to the area, but the defense and security establishment, Vice President Pence, you know, there has been a lot of high-level focus on the region. Now, in terms of actual practicalities, you know, a lot will come down to things like defense agreements, arms sales, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've seen U.S.-India sign two very important defense agreements. There's a third one coming up. And if those three come into place, then you have a very deep strategic partnership. However, that's counterbalanced by issues like India potentially buying the S-400 missile defense system from Russia, which would preclude it from F-35 purchases, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, this is similar to what happened in Turkey. I mean, you can't dissociate this region from what's happening elsewhere because everybody's trying to understand what direction is coming out of the U.S. So if India buys the, the S-400, they've signed, they haven't taken delivery, they haven't paid, but if they, if they do then that's going to cut them off for a generation from a lot of other high-tech purchases from the U.S. because that Russian system will suck data that would compromise the U.S. systems if they were put in place. Mm. Now, Turkey has taken delivery, and, uh, and they were cut off from the, from the F-35, but there were no sanctions. There were no economic sanctions. So some in the Indian strategic community are saying, this is going to kill our alliance with the U.S. And some are, others are saying, this doesn't seem to have any economic consequences, so why wouldn't we do it? Yeah. So unless the sanctions go on Turkey, the Indians might buy the system, and that might put the brakes on some aspects of that relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all interrelated and highly dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, it's complicated. So obviously we mentioned at the start that the... Energy, Environment and Resources Department are involved at Chatham House in this project you're working on. What is the environmental angle on this picture? There are multiple environmental angles. A lot of it has to do with the way that an environmental security can, aff can affect or derail any strategic calculation. Mm -hmm. So an element of this, for example, are, are the Pacific Islands. Uh, the Pacific Islands are very clear that climate change is their highest priority. 
It's not necessarily the highest priority of Australia, which is the main Western partner to the Pacific Islands in the region. So um, ironically, if, uh, if Australia doesn't present as being a defender in that context of Pacific Island priorities, they're, they're more likely to go to China, you know, which is horrific environmentally. But for, for a bunch of reasons, the way that China presents itself in the Pacific Islands, including in terms of investment and population movement, and all that sort of stuff, it becomes less of an issue. And the, the climate positioning of Australia becomes an irritant to that relationship. So not only do you have the kind of critical infrastructure vulnerability issues, but you also have um, the way that it affects the, the perceptions of the relationships between the countries and can push potential allies towards other partners who, in fact, may be less beneficial for it, but who have a, a better PR on, on this particular issue. And so why don't you tell us a bit more about the specific project that you guys are running? What's, what's that going to look at in terms of this? So, so the project is trying to understand and collate some of the issues we've just been talking about in terms of perceptions and how perceptions can affect strategic positioning. So what we're doing is uh, we're, we're running uh, workshops with members of the strategic community brainstorming workshops in six different locations in partnership with extremely good local think tanks. We're very, very lucky with our partners. So we've already done three. We did the one in Washington with the East-West Center. Um, we did the one at Chatham House here, and we completed the one in Paris with IFRI. And in all cases, what we do is we bring together people from across uh, sectors, so um, defense, or, like for example, Ministry of Defense, uh, Foreign Office, uh, Treasury, um, people from the private sector, just to try to find out what they think will happen in the Indo-Pacific between now and 2024. Hmm. Just just a, a very broad thing. And what they think could derail it in one direction or the other, and what they think could be beneficial for their strategic community, especially in terms of bilateral relationships. So for example, in the case of the US one, their, their big unknown is actually their own administration. So they're not sure what's going to happen in 2020. They're not sure, you know, where elements of those things of the existing defense alignments are going to be pushed forward or not. So they have a lot of insecurity in terms of their own positioning. But when you look at, for example, how they view the UK in the Indo-Pacific, and, and we do a lot of these bilaterals, you're, you're sitting in Washington, you're asking them, what do you think of France in the Indo-Pacific? What do you think of Japan in the Indo-Pacific? How can U.S. interests be better served or will be harmed by aspects of those relationships? Mm. So, for example, in terms of the UK, one thing that came up, which was, which was surprising and interesting, was... They're not worried about Brexit. In fact, they think that Brexit would be very good for U.S.-U.K. defense and security relationship because it would detach it from the EU and it would make it um, much easier to have areas of common interests move forward quicker and to understand why there might be problems in areas where, where they don't dovetail. So they see it as a simplification of that relationship. However, one of the things they were concerned about was whether the city in London would become involved in internationalizing the renminbi, the Chinese currency, right. which mm -hmm. could have strategic implications. It could bring in a lot of Chinese money through London, and that could affect uh, some of the decision-making in London. Mm -hmm. So that came out because we did the workshop there, and we did those, that bilateral analysis. Similarly, uh, in, in the UK, there is a, a lot of concern in the room about the strategic outcome of Brexit. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, 
They saw, you know, what relationships they thought would be stronger or weaker all kind of started to come out. And in France, you know, <laughs> they were very concerned about Brexit also. <laughs> um, but they were very, yeah, they were very clear. They're pursuing France's strategic interests and, and it's almost secondary to what the EU is doing in the region. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, so you're getting very different views of the region and how countries are working together. And so we've done those three. And the next three we're going to do will be um, in Tokyo with, uh, the, with JIIA, another excellent think tank, um, and in India with Gateway House, also, also very, very, very lucky with our partners. And we're going to be doing the, the last one in the Pacific Islands with the Royal Oceania Institute in Tonga. Wow. Um, so it's... We're super lucky. It's a really exciting and interesting project. That's quite a trip. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. really amazing. Yeah. Okay, great. So if people want to find out a bit more about the project as it develops, how can they how can they follow this? Well, we're going to be, um, because Undercurrents has been so great and, uh, and influential and interesting, we've copied you and oh, we're shucks. going to be doing uh, <laughs> uh, little, little podcasts based on each one. So um, we'll do one, one from each of the six locations just to give a flavor of the sort of things that were discussed in those locations. Um, and then at the end of the entire project, we'll be putting out a publicly available report mm-hmm. that will collate uh, and summarize some of the things that, that we learned. Brilliant. Okay, well, watch out, everyone uh, listening at home, for these podcasts, which will be up on the Chatham House website uh, very soon, I imagine. Hopefully. Hopefully soon. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, Cleo, thank you so much for your time. Great pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed listening. It's great to be back in the podcast saddle, as it were, back in the studio, getting some questions out there. We will be back very shortly, we hope, with some new interviews for you. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton, and this has been Undercurrents.